Welcome. I'm Molly McCann Sanders, and you are listening to Bravado. Today is our second episode, airing on January 10th, 2023, the first of this new year. The second, after our soft launch uh, in December, thank you to everyone who listened, shared, liked, and left a review. I truly am very, very grateful for the warm welcome back. Now, right before I started recording this episode, I saw the news that the Pentagon has rescinded its vaccine mandate for the military. We'll get to that in a second, but today we're, we're talking mostly about Kevin McCarthy and his bid to be Speaker of the House and his struggle to finally uh, finally take the gavel. And our legal update is about a, um, a Southwest Airlines case. And then, of course, we will have our mailbag. So let's just jump into this fight for the Speaker's position and this revolt within the GOP. And what I really want to focus in on, of course, this happened last week. It's not like it's breaking news. I want to talk about it because I just saw a very disturbing, in my opinion, response to this revolt, to this struggle, to this fight. As you know, it took 15 rounds for McCarthy to finally secure the vote. And within, I would say, the first two rounds, I was scrolling Twitter, and I started seeing all sorts of Republicans and, dare I even say, conservatives complaining that this was embarrassing. It was embarrassing for the GOP. It looks like we are not put together. They should have ironed this stuff out backstage. I thought this was wonderful. I think I I felt that no matter the outcome, the struggle itself was worth something. So let's just start with the struggle. This is politics. Politics, the art of self-government, politics is a contact sport, figuratively, not literally. But it's it's a rough and tumble world. That's part of, frankly, in in, in better days, what made politics, I think, exciting. Part of what ma- makes it exciting is their strategy. Uh, you have to cut deals. There, sometimes there are these dramatic these dramatic incidents. Um, they were talking about how C-SPAN put extra cameras on the House floor. So there are always these stable cameras that are recording Congress. And so you can jump on a C-SPAN and just watch a static camera showing whatever's going on. But C-SPAN added cameras to the floor that could move around and get more dramatic angles on the various representatives. It was it was riveting primetime TV for a lot of people. Very high ratings on those 15 rounds as Kevin McCarthy struggled to take his position as Speaker of the House. So that is part of politics. And it's not it's not a bad thing. It is how we self-govern. People disagree. Passions run high. And the way we deal with that in the United States is we hammer it out through the political process. So it is it is by its nature an often dramatic it's a dramatic process. So I, I was surprised and disturbed by how many people shied away from that. And we and I've seen this in a lot of different areas of of our politics. It speaks to a deeper root issue that we have on the right is this inability to be down for the struggle, so to speak, this inability to engage a little more roughly to to move the ball forward. And that might be the reason why we've been losing so badly. This revolt, of course, was 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 led by MAGA Republicans finally getting into office. So one thing I would say is, even if nothing had come from it, I think simply the specter of 20 hardcore right-wing MAGA Republicans standing up to Kevin McCarthy and saying, 
we don't want you as speaker. If nothing else, it sent out this this signal of hope to the nation, a signal of hope to the MAGA world. We have just been beaten down again and again and again. It has been a brutal two years. And these newly elected, many of a number of them, newly elected freshman congressmen coming in and saying, this isn't going to be business as usual anymore. Had they accomplished nothing but sending that message, it would have been uh, well worth their effort and their time. But of course, what we discovered was they they pushed McCarthy up against a wall, and he was forced to give a number of concessions. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, and I will preface what I'm about to say by admitting that the Wall Street Journal is by no means a super conservative newspaper, but it's on the right end of the spectrum when it comes to mainstream news. But both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post had uh, good write-ups on this fight for the speaker's battle. The Washington Post actually had a really in-depth and I thought very good article, very interesting article. You can always, when you're reading these these articles, you can see the bias and you can see their perspective and still get some very, very good news. The headline is, How Kevin McCarthy Survived the GOP Revolt to Become House Speaker. And this was written on January 7th. It's quite long, but it talks about it. It says, huddled in, huddled in the office of Majority Whip Tom Emmer, McCarthy told three moderates and four holdouts that his offer was to become the 55th Speaker by significantly weakening the position and empowering his party's hardliners. So weakening the position really just means weakening, as Russ Vogt calls it, the cartel, and empowering his party's hardliners, of course, just means empowering the MAGA the MAGA right. That's us. That's a good thing. The Washington Post obviously thinks it's a bad thing, but uh, we can read and understand that that's a very, very good thing. Uh, later, it says the Wednesday night meeting became the basis for a framework agreement hammered out over two more days and six more rounds of voting, eventually leading to McCarthy's winning the speakership in the early hours of Saturday morning. Months of posturing and saber rattling at last gave way to serious talks on changing how the new house would operate with a special focus on passing spending bills. Now, I want to remind you, the reports that I read right at the beginning of this fight, you know, in round one, I heard that when Freedom Caucus members approached McCarthy and asked for various various concessions, so to speak, he, he treated them with contempt. He had no interest in working with them or putting them on committees, um, treated them with scorn. And, and he got he got what he deserved for that. They really, they really forced his hand. The Washington Post article, very interestingly, they, they went and they talked to Russ Vogt, who, as they note here, a former head of the White House Budget Office during the Trump administration, who now leads a conservative nonprofit, Center for Renewing America. And he's great. He's on uh, Bannon's War Room, if you listen to that. He's on there all the time. So let's not lose sight of what this battle is about. Uh, one thing that this 15 rounds did was it highlighted for people who aren't paying attention, it highlighted Kevin McCarthy. It reminded people to pause and think back over his voting record. I mean, it, things have been so busy in the United States in the last few years. Congress is completely ineffective, in my personal opinion, that I, I believe that a lot of people kind of check out and might not be that familiar with Kevin McCarthy. But let's remember that Kevin McCarthy is a Paul Ryan devotee. He worked in lockstep with Ryan back in the day, and he still does. He was... Paul Ryan's pick to sort of succeed him in leadership. So that alone should tell you everything you need to know about McCarthy. He's certainly a uniparty Republican. 
He caved immediately on J6, on on the January 6th debacle, and he criticized Donald Trump in the very stressful days following January 6th. He's referred to January 6th as a violent insurrection, so he's bought into that insane leftist narrative that is so pernicious. I, I talked about this on one of my earlier episodes when my podcast was America's Moment And I should either pull that up at some point or just uh, re-record it here for you all again. But the the narrative that January 6th was a violent insurrection that almost toppled our government is just ridiculous. I mean, it's but but it's not just ridiculous. It is pernicious and dangerous. And you can see this in the court cases that are ongoing the deal with January 6th. So McCarthy jumped right on that bandwagon. He has never done anything to support the January 6th defendants. You know, he wants nothing, nothing to do with that. And 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 in my opinion, that tells me everything I need to know about a leader in America today. Weak, weak, weak. There's some irony in the McCarthy, uh, in the McCarthy tale, because McCarthy worked very hard to defeat really solid America first MAGA candidates in the primary in the lead up to 2022. When we look at the red wave that never materialized, I believe very sincerely that part of that was due to voter fraud. Obviously, I think we have a significant voter fraud issue. But part of it was that the GOP leadership, the uniparty Republicans, did not want a massive MAGA majority in Congress. They didn't want what happened sort of in micro in Congress over the weekend with this revolt from the Freedom Caucus members. And so they actively worked against some of our best and our brightest. And the candidate, of course, that I'm most upset about is Joe Kent out of Washington State. I think everyone who listens to this show is familiar with Joe Kent. He is a major rising star in our movement. He was a special forces uh, service member. He's fought multiple tours overseas. His wife was killed in in action in Syria. And he really understands. He understands America. He understands the moment we're in today. He understands the sacrifice that Americans are being asked uh, to give again and again by our uniparty Republicans who simply get wealthy on the war machine. And he, he was, he's articulate. I mean, he is, he was, but I believe he remains a massive rising star in our movement. And McCarthy actively worked against him in the primary. McCarthy saw him, understood the threat that he posed, that, that Kent posed to the uniparty cartel, as Russ Vogt likes to call it, and he worked to defeat him. And uh, Joe Kent was not able to squeeze out in the general, unfortunately, and that's probably partly due to, the, to McCarthy undermining him in the primary. And also, as I say, I, I think we have serious, serious voter fraud issues. And don't take my word for this alone. Don't take Joe Kent's word for it alone. The Washington Post even reported on it. I was amazed to see as I was reading, it said McCarthy and close allies had raised and routed millions of dollars toward winning the House, but also shaping the upcoming class of Republicans. Their goal was winning not just a majority, but, quote, a governing majority, meaning a conference that would reliably support McCarthy and pass legislation. In some cases, that meant quiet moves by allies and donors to swing primaries away from controversial candidates such as Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina and Joe Kent in Washington. Now, I don't really mind about Madison Cawthorn, to be completely honest with you, but as I say, Joe Kent, targeting Joe Kent was um, was really dirty. And it also just shows these uniparty Republicans in Congress, 
it's all about their power. It's all about maintaining their power. And they were willing, they were willing to jeopardize a massive red wave so that they could cobble together the majority that would favor them and their policies. Not the will of the American people, not the will of the America First MAGA movement. And it just makes my blood boil. The Washington Post article, just to finish up with it, has some really interesting points. Fascinatingly to me, they went and they interviewed Russ Vogt, who, according to them, a former head of the White House Budget Office during the Trump administration, who now leads a conservative nonprofit, Center for Renewing America. And Russ Vote, if I think a lot of you probably also listen to some some of Bannon, Bannon's War Room, and you're you'd be familiar with Russ because he's on there quite a bit. He really puts into good terms what we're dealing with with these uniparty Republicans. He said, Vote would articulate it. The case, as Vote would articulate it, was against the cartel. His term for how Republican and Democratic leaders in Congress have privately negotiated massive must-pass spending bills with little to no input from rank-and-file lawmakers. Quote, until you fix that and give the procedural control a check with conservatives, you're going to have business as usual with the cartel. And right there, that is the reason why this GOP revolt, even though it's just 20 members against everybody else, was so incredibly important. We have got to break business as usual in Washington. And it starts with a little revolt, like we saw, a little revolt that became quite a big news story that we watched over the weekend. That's how you started. It, that, that not, it didn't just give hope to all of us. They actually moved the ball forward. Because as I hope you know by now, they actually did get substantive concessions from McCarthy. And uh, that's what the Washington Post is bemoaning. If you read the Wall Street Journal, you might have seen Peggy Noonan's piece over the weekend. That's what she was bemoaning. They, quote, weakened the speaker, i.e. they made him more susceptible to ousting by the minority if he doesn't do what they want him to do. So again, turning to the Wall Street Journal, they had a great article, I think it was just yesterday, in which they walked through some of the concessions that these uh, very brave congressmen and congresswomen were able to force from McCarthy. So this was in the Monday edition of the Wall Street Journal, Monday, January 9th. It was on page, if you're interested, A4. And the headline is Concessions McCarthy Gave to Get the Job. Now, they note that we actually don't know for sure what all of the concessions were, but the rumor going around was that these some of these items were on the concessions list. The one you've probably heard of the most is this motion to vacate, this idea that one one member of Congress can move to oust the speaker if they're not happy. Now, of course, with a Republican majority, that should be that shouldn't be abused. I'm not like I'm not worried that a Democrat will come and move to oust the speaker and get in a, a Democrat. But it certainly hangs a bit of a sword over McCarthy's head moving forward. It's it's a very again, it's a very good thing if we want to start to better control these uniparty Republicans. So they were able to get that. They requested debt ceiling and spending cut provisions. Not quite sure how those will play out, but hopefully positively. Committee assignments. They wanted some members of the Freedom Caucus, uh, which is these you know very MAGA, America First type leaders. They wanted assignments to powerful committees so we can have a voice in Congress. And uh, they had a number of other legislative demands. One thing I did hear on Twitter, and again, 
these discussions weren't public, so we don't know everything. But I did hear that McCarthy had at first agreed to this uh, church committee style investigation of the government, the weaponization of the government, but he wouldn't give it any real teeth. And it's my understanding that after several more rounds of voting where he continued to lose, he uh, finally agreed to permit the committee to be framed such that it had more more authority and more teeth, which I think Lauren, Lauren Boebert is very pleased about this committee being formed. So I'm going to assume that it has um, it has some real clout behind it, which is excellent. So for all of the naysayers who were embarrassed and didn't understand why these people were standing up, not only did they send out a signal to the rest of America that some, at least even if it's a small number, some people in Congress understand what we are suffering and they are they're fulfilling their promise to be fighters for us, the American people. Not only did it send out that hopeful signal, but it actually brought about some real concrete, positive steps forward for MAGA, America first, and for this country. So I would say every single person who who got who who jumped on that bandwagon, every single member of Congress who who stood strong, including the ones who ultimately started to to switch their votes, they all are to be applauded. They all participated in what I believe was an historic revolt within the party and uh, brought about real positive change. I'm very proud of them. As I say, it's extremely hopeful. And not to go on too long about this topic, but I want to jump back to the very first point I made about how politics is a contact sport. And uh, these sorts of tussles are natural and should be more frequent, to be honest with you, in a healthy, functioning republic such as our own, self-governing nation such as our own. We should, If we had really principled men and women in Congress, and we had a lot of them, we'd see more of these, quote, revolts. We'd see more people standing up and saying, you know, I understand that 200 of you are voting for McCarthy, and the peer pressure is real, and the media pressure is real, and yet... My constituents don't like McCarthy for good reason, and I'm not going to vote for him. And we would see more of that. But but we have this attitude, particularly on the right, that uh, we have to be dignified and politics should never be rough and rowdy and everyone should just keep that backroom deals and only come out when we've got a polished, united front, which is which is just nonsense. But a good idea of how, or a good example, it's it's an extreme example, but it's a good example of how this attitude can become quite poisonous, is the whole debacle surrounding January 6th, maybe more particularly the fight against election fraud and against our stolen election in 2020. Because what happened in 2020, January 6th was really, it was a smokescreen. The left criminalized dissent. The left criminalized self-government and the political process. They criminalized the rough and tumble and the tussle of the political process. If you think about all of the different actions that Donald Trump and his advisors took to try to stop the certification of the 2020 election, send it back to the states, have 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 an actual examination of what took place in 2020, all of those people are under the scrutiny of the federal government now. Some of them are facing uh, criminal charges. And and anyone who participated or supported that is frowned upon 
as, you know, this an insurrectionist or someone who was undermining our democracy. When the reality is that all of those men and women were simply trying to use every tool, every legal tool at their disposal to find a way to stop what they perceived as a gross injustice. And I've got bad news for the left and for anyone who has this this view of politics and the world. Americans no longer have faith in their elections. Had we paused in 2020 as Donald Trump and so many of his advisors were trying to accomplish, they were trying to accomplish that pause so that we could really examine and see if the election was in fact stolen or or whether it was free and fair, in fact, uh, we would have a healthier, quote, democracy, republic. We would have a healthier nation because people would have trust in the system if, in fact, this was free and fair. But you know, if you really examine what was going on there, it was lawyers and politicians and you know, political people just trying to figure out how to use the Constitution and the tools that we rightly and justly have but have never used before, how we could use those in 2020 to to get a grip on the election and take back what we believe was ours, our victory. And it certainly was not an insurrection. It was it was the rough and tumble of the political process. And people are so ignorant of history, to be honest, ignorant of the Constitution, ignorant of the way our system functions, and weak, again, to be too frank, perhaps, soft and weak, that they can't even recognize that that is what actually happened there. And so the media and the left they they jumped on this weaponization bandwagon and, as I say, essentially criminalized perfectly American political activity. And that is a real threat. That's a real threat to our republic. That's a threat to the longevity of this nation. So, as I say, that's a that's a very extreme example. But uh, you see it sort of in the micro here where... People were getting uncomfortable because we forced Kevin McCarthy to undergo the indignity of 15 rounds before he became Speaker of the House. And in the process, he had to make concessions to the MAGA America First wing of the Republican Party, which I've got news for you, is in fact the majority. We just were thwarted in our electoral ambitions during the midterms. But (laughs) that's the base those 20 people, they represent the base. And the base is the majority. We can't win without everyone else, but we are still the majority. So something to think about. Uh, that's my that's my perspective. I think we have to have a higher tolerance for the rough and tumble of politics because that's the way the game is played. And that is the only way we are going to remain free. All right, let's talk very briefly about this vaccine mandate uh, as I say, it just the news just broke as I was starting to record this podcast. So I'll I just sort of have the off the top of my head thoughts, but I do want to say a few words. Certainly, I am thrilled that the that the mandate has been dropped, and I want to send a special congratulations to all of our military men and women and their families who have stayed strong through what has been absolute hell. <laughs> standing up for your religious rights, standing up for your your human rights, and telling the administration you will not take this untested gene therapy. So good for you. Huge congratulations. It's an amazing victory and day of celebration for those people. But 
I also feel very, very strongly, I just kind of scanned the two pages that the Pentagon released, and it's a nauseating, self-congratulatory um, missive discussing how successful the vaccine mandate was and military readiness and all of this nonsense. And what I will say is, I think it's very, very important that we continue to amass the increasingly disturbing data about the vaccine and about the repercussions it can have for people's health. And I think we're going to find out as time goes on that our leaders, including leaders in the in the military, were aware of uh, not just the experimental nature of these vaccines, but of the very real side effects that people were suffering. This has been this has been a just an almost unimaginable coercion and abuse of the American people, and certainly of the military, where they just don't have the same you know freedom to fight back and to say no. They didn't have the same power to resist in court. It it just it, it truly was horrific. And as someone who dealt with a lot of members of the armed services, fighting the vaccine, working on religious accommodation requests, and and speaking speaking to people whose families, you know, were going through you know, horrific pressure. This it's not just it wasn't just a matter of, oh, do I take the vaccine or not? You know, you had spouses uh, in disagreement. It, it put tremendous tremendous pressure on families and relationships. And, you know, the evil of this vaccine mandate is almost incalculable. So we, we have to we have to continue to press for accountability for these uh, men and women in leadership who stuffed this down the throats of our armed service members. And of course, I, I very frankly believe, you know, for all this talk of military readiness, ultimately, I think we're going to find that it made us much, much weaker. It drove many good men and women out of the military. And ultimately, our fighting force is weaker for it, because I do think that we have a lot of side effects that are going to manifest themselves over the years. And that's going to just further weaken the military. So I'll look at it a little more, maybe talk a little bit a bit about it on Instagram. But as I say, a lot of mixed emotions tonight, uh, congratulating those who stood strong and and also recognizing that you can't undo the damage that has been done by this vaccine mandate. All right, I want to talk quickly, a little bit of a legal update, speaking of religious liberty and the like. I'm a huge Southwest fan. I, I have a love-hate relationship with them because... I fly them, and I love their policies. I love being able to just cancel my flight. I love their relatively cheap fares, and I actually like open seating. But from a legal perspective and from the vaccine perspective, I've really, really been disappointed with Southwest as a company. They, early on, they were very pro-vaccine rules. I assume, I think that they thought that just kind of really being hardcore on on these vaccine rules would get everyone in line and get business back up and running. And I'm not I'm not sure, but they were really terrible on on the vaccine mandates. But as you know, Southwest pilots, who in my opinion finally broke the the vaccine mandate for for these various airlines and really broke their spirit because last year they the Southwest pilots were the ones who went on strike and Southwest tried to pretend it was something else but it was it was a pilot strike and they lost millions of dollars in a very short amount of time and had to rescind that mandate and uh, there was a domino effect from that so I'm very proud of the Southwest 
uh, employees, if not their leadership. But in any event, I don't know how many of you have followed this Charlene Carter case. She was a Southwest flight attendant who was fired for objecting to her union supporting abortion via they went to the Women's March and they had a big Southwest uh, flight attendant sign at the Women's March and they were supporting abortion. And she spoke out against that and she was fired for that. Turns out that there's a very bad culture of uh, speech suppression within within the Southwest family. She unveiled that for us all through her lawsuit against Southwest. And happily, um, at the beginning of December, she she won her suit. And then in December, uh, Judge Brantley Starr of the Northern District of Texas finally issued his order. He awarded Carter $300,000 in compensatory and punitive damages, 300000 in compensatory and punitive damages from the Flight Attendance Union and back pay and prejudgment interest. He, he, he awarded her the maximum uh, he could award her. He also ordered, and I think this is really important, he ordered that Carter be reinstated as a flight attendant. She had requested to get her job back. She loves to be a flight attendant. She wanted her job back. And uh, Southwest didn't want to give her her job back, but court ordered ordered them to rehire her, which is which is wonderful. And then maybe most importantly, Starr applied this decision um, to Southwest flight attendants as a class. And he forbade Southwest from, quote, discriminating against Southwest flight attendants for their religious practices and beliefs, including but not limited to those expressed on social media and those concerning abortion. As I say, I've heard from flight attendants who have who have talked about how bad the culture is within the company, um, how their speech rights are are really narrow and how they're under a lot of scrutiny for what they say, both at work, but also just on personal social media. The Epoch Times had a great article about this sometime in mid-November. I'll try to look for it and post it on my Twitter and maybe my Instagram. But it was really excellent talking about how uh, so many flight attendants beyond Ms. Carter uh, feel under scrutiny and feel afraid for their jobs if they if they express their religious beliefs and convictions. So this court, um, Judge Brantley Starr, applying this to the flight attendants as a class uh, is really really important and a wonderful win for religious liberty. So I know that that case is on appeal and there are some other little twists and turns and I will continue to follow it, but that was a very positive win for religious liberty out of the Northern District of Texas. Texas, uh, the Texas court system really is one of the best in the nation. By Texas, I mean federal court in Texas. All right, let's finish up with the mailbag. Again, I usually post, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a quote Monday mailbag on my Instagram. You can submit your questions and then I will answer them here on the show on Tuesday. Someone asks, what are your thoughts on the seeming rise in athletes collapsing? Obviously, it's very disturbing. I think any rational person who's honest is going to have to line up the dates between uh, when the COVID vaccine started rolling out and when we started to see these young fit people dropping dropping like flies and you you can draw you should be able to draw your own conclusions you know i'm i'm someone i'm very 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 down on the vaccines and i think more and more uh, data will come out to support those of us who have a sneaking suspicion that the vaccines are behind not just the athletes collapsing but uh, this disturbing rise in mortality and there are you know, I, I've talked about this on previous podcasts as well. The insurance industry, they don't they don't mess around. They're in the business of 
of predicting, of tracking and accurately predicting when people are likely to die because that that's how they make their money. And it was it was last year. I mean, it was a long time ago that the insurance companies blew the whistle and said, we are seeing a catastrophic rise in deaths among this section of people. I can't remember if it's 18 or 18 to 40 year olds or 30 to 45 year olds or something. But it's that it's that group of young people who should be really healthy. They should be paying their premiums and not cashing in on their insurance policies. And uh, the insurance uh, companies were, were blowing the whistle and saying, it is catastrophic the numbers we're seeing in excess deaths in this in this cohort. And uh, people people don't want to look at it. They don't want to believe that it's true. But in time, I think we will be we'll be forced to see that this rise in young people dying is related to uh, something we all did in the last couple of years. Another person asks, is the narrative about voters not supporting Trump true? I would say it's greatly exaggerated. It's greatly exaggerated. And I should probably do an entire podcast about this. But and I've been thinking about it and mulling whether or not I should talk about this yet. I think I've got some time to talk about the whole Trump running for office and where his support is. But I will certainly say to you that people are wrong if they think that the base is abandoning Trump. A lot of a lot of people have jumped ship. A lot of prominent sort of more laptop class types have decided that Trump's no longer their candidate. But do not be deceived into thinking that this is a complete mass exodus from the Trump train. You're, you're going to find out very quickly as the primaries heat up that Trump still commands an enormous amount of love, loyalty, and support. So I, w- I would say the answer is it's mixed. I definitely, as I watch, He's made some significant missteps. I think he continues to make missteps. He's got some very bad advisors whom he should fire. But that does not mean that the base has left Trump. So as I say, we'll talk about that a little more down the road. But that's the short answer. Will the Republicans follow through on these new promises? Well, this question needs some some definition. So the Republicans, if we're talking about Kevin McCarthy And the Uniparty Republicans, no, they will do what they've always done. They will talk a great line and do nothing at all. And in fact, they will stab us in the back. So we can be assured that we're not going to be seeing anything spectacular from Kevin McCarthy and the Uniparty Republicans. I have a lot of hope for the America First minority within the Republican majority in Congress right now. And I think we're off to a really great start, as we've discussed in depth at the beginning of this show. So I have a lot of hope for for those people. We need to continue to encourage them and give them our support when they do the sort of things that they just did over the weekend by backing Kevin McCarthy against a wall and forcing him to grant them these various concessions. So, so make sure you're loud and congratulatory to all of those who brought that about. Do you think DeSantis will run? I don't know. I think that it's a tough... I think he's really agonizing over it, to be honest with you. Obviously, I think, again, the Kevin McCarthy, Paul Ryans of the world, they're really pushing him to run. He's getting a lot of support from, again, a lot of sort of prominent laptop class type leaders encouraging him to run. I really hope that he recognizes that, in my opinion, this is not this is not his cycle and he would be much better 
he he's in a much better place in Florida fighting at the state level and the state is the states are so important right now. I hope he stays there and continues his extremely successful run as governor. But time will tell. Any thoughts on the Illinois gun grab? I don't have a lot of thoughts on it. Um they just they just passed their gun grab bill as you put it. I've seen that Colorado is introducing a similar a similar law and you know the war against guns is is not going to stop we just have to push back harder i wrote an article for the uk mallard over the summer uh, talking about how with this rise in in gun crime it's more important than ever for freedom loving americans for people who value the second amendment to stand up and more vocally say no no we will not give up our guns because we will not give up our freedom so it doesn't surprise me coming from illinois it's one of the worst states in the union it disappoints me uh, coming from colorado but colorado has gotten very very progressive we'll see if all of these we'll see if all of these measures stand up to court to court challenges. I don't, I haven't looked at the bills closely, but I know they're happening. And, you know, again, we have 50 states and some of them are are quite uh, left. So it doesn't surprise me coming from Illinois or Colorado. All right. I think that is about it. I'll wrap up this episode. Again, I want to thank you all for listening. Thank everyone who liked, listened, and shared the podcast last time. Please, again, if you enjoyed this episode, give it a like on whatever platform you listen to. Uh, Subscribe so that you get the next episodes. And if you want to leave a review or give me a five-star rating, if you feel so inclined, that is always greatly appreciated. I will look forward to seeing you next week here on Bravado.